We have a great window into prayer, beloved. In the epistles, the apostle Paul will often tell those whom he wrote what he prayed for on their account. For this reason, I too, he says in Ephesians 1, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of <laughs> a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? This work of God that Paul prays for in the lives of the Ephesians is my prayer for you. I always give you a moment for silent prayer before we open the word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to be the body of Christ, to be in the royal family of God, to be about your work, the work that you sent your Son to accomplish, that you've included us in as we are in Christ, and about that which he sent us to do. We praise you and thank you for the privilege of entering into that labor and the power of your Spirit, therefore by your grace, to be exponents, not deserving ever to speak for you, but like Isaiah, having been cleansed, made meet, made fit to speak the truth to a world that desperately needs it. Tonight, Father, we open your word to Isaiah so that we will know you, so that you'll transform us in accordance to the character of your son as we pay attention to your precious word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I ask you to turn your Bibles tonight to Isaiah chapter 14. Our fun little interlude into the appendix of Isaiah's um, massive first 39 chapters, our, our look into the, the narrative of the history, what God said he would do to Assyria. We have to, to, to say goodbye to that. And tonight we have to uh, move forward in Isaiah chapter 14 to his oracle against Philistia. But first, let's just remind ourselves of what God said uh, he would do between 15 and 20 years before the event that we read about last time. We, we read last time about how Sennacherib's entire army was destroyed by the angel of the Lord destroying uh, the enemies of Israel in the land of Judah. And it's a miraculous work that the Lord accomplished in response by God's eternal sovereign decree in response to Hezekiah's intercession for his nation. But in Isaiah 14, 24, long before that happened, there's a prophecy of the event. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely just as I have intended, so it's happened. Just as I planned, so it will stand to break Assyria in my land, and I will trample him on my mountains. Notice the geography is specific. It's going to be in my land on my mountains. Now, God owns everything, but he's talking about Judah. He's talking about the, the, the land that he promised to give Abraham and his kids. I'll break Assyria in my land, on my trample, I'll trample him on my mountains, and then his yoke will be removed from them, 
and his burden removed from their shoulder. This is the plan devised against the whole earth, and this is the the hand that is stretched out against all the nations. Remember chapters 13 and 14, most of 13 and 14 in Isaiah is an oracle about all the nations in the one representative nation of Babylon. And it takes them from Isaiah's day and the pagans and rebellion against God to the end of the tribulation and the final work of God regarding the final king of Babylon, the Antichrist. But here he's talking about Assyria in the nearer term, and it's part of his eternal plan that includes all of the nations in his history. In verse 27, God says, For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as for a stretched out hand, who can turn it back? The oracle God had against Judah's enemy, Assyria, which was the instrument of God's discipline, the instrument of God's discipline on both the northern kingdom, finally destroyed in 722 B.C., and then under Sennacherib, the enemy of the southern kingdom, And we read about the events, the miraculous events of their laying siege to Jerusalem and being destroyed by God himself without any effort on behalf of from Hezekiah's army in 701 BC. And now we turn the page uh, in our study to the other nations. So we've had Babylon, we've had Assyria, and now we're looking at God's oracle against Philistia. Now, as you look at this list, Isaiah chapters 13 through 23, you could call it the book of the nations, God's oracles about the other nations. It's very interesting that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, speaking in the, the kings, uh, in the days of the kings uh, from David of Judah, uh, in someone from their household, Isaiah, someone, a member of court, probably a cousin to the, to the line of David, He is speaking now specifically about the Gentile nations that are neighbors of Judah. Within Judah, you have a prophet named Isaiah. And I wonder about this. Did Isaiah know he was Isaiah? Did he know that he was going to be uh, mentioned 2,700 or 2,300 years later, that we would be talking about his prophetic oracles and uh, the revelations that God gave through him? Did did he have any... Sorry, it's 2,700 years later. Did he have any idea that he would be the great Isaiah. And my suspicion is, based on chapter 6, and the theme that runs throughout the book of Isaiah, which is that which is exalted in arrogance against God is going to be laid flat, and that which humbles itself before God under his hand will be exalted. Based on that theme of Isaiah, I suspect he didn't know much about his significance to us in our walk with God as we get to know God through what God revealed to and through Isaiah. But I also want to point out the, the grace of God, his mercy toward these pagans and their wickedness, and despite their wickedness and their deserving of God's wrath, which they would all receive, and that turns out for most of them for eternity. He has oracles of judgment warning them all through this section. This is, this is part of Israel's design that they would be the apple of God's eye and that they would be the priest as a kingdom of priests representing the other nations to God. And so you have oracles from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of creation, the only God who's really there, speaking through Judah to these other nations. Oracles of judgment uh, against them. And in this case, in the study tonight of Philistia and Moab, especially Moab, with a great warning and an invitation and a reminder of the compassion and mercy of the God that we serve. So we'll read Philistia. This is the, the land, is one, one possible map. And I know the, the, uh, <laughs> the, 
the dots on here are impossibly small. But you can see here, everybody can hopefully see the Dead Sea. Uh, it's this body of water right here. Then you get the big drink over to the, um, to the uh, west, and that is the Mediterranean Sea, the big water. And on the coast, you have the, the land of Philistia, which is five cities. They call it the Pentopolis, the five great cities uh, that we believe are descendants of the Greek sea peoples. And that's a, that's a controversial statement archaeologically, but they are culturally different in many ways from the Canaanites and the other peoples in the area. And, and one of the differences is they're like a, they're a confederation of five cities, like city-states like the Greeks would do. They're a confederation of five city-states that uh, work together. And, um, and here is Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and Got. Got. Does anybody know about Got? That's where Goliath's from. Goliath been, uh, from, from Got. Men got. That's, that's where he's from. And these are the five cities that, are, uh, fi- that figure into the stories of David and Saul. And this is hundreds of years later from those stories. But um, they're still there. They're still pagans. They're still opposed. And they're still under God's judgment. Now, here's the interesting thing. These people touched, their borders touched Judah and, Jer- and Jerusalem and Israel. They, they were affiliated where they could talk to these people, and they knew that they did rituals on their babies on the eighth day. And they knew that those people didn't work on the seventh day. And they knew that those people think that their God is the only creator God, and he isn't the son. Our God, they, they would worship, would be the son. Now, there's some speculation about the Philistines. Uh, people have said, well, we know from the Samson story that they worship Dagon, or as you read, Dagon. And since the Hebrew D-A-G, dog, is fish in Hebrew, the conjecture was for a long time that Dagon is a fish. So we've got some sort of Neptune deity, some sort of water deity, which helps us with their Greek sea peoples, and so they're worshiping like the old Greek gods or something like that. There's, a, there's some problems with that uh, reasoning. One of the problems is that we've dug up enough other cities nearby that we didn't know about when they were calling Dagon the fish god, and uh, it seems like Dagon's more of a Baal. He's more of a sun god. So uh, I believe that's the, one of the deliverances of digging up Ugarit, which is a nearby city to these cultures. And so the problem is speculation. We see something that we want. Oh, they're, they're we're worshiping the fish God. Probably not. But, um, but that's for people in um, ivory tower of Akadem to argue about and to fight about and uh, to bite and tear and devour each other over. And for us, it doesn't matter what uh, false satanic version of, of cosmology they had adopted. They were idolaters and under God's wrath. And so we're going to read about that uh, in this oracle from uh, the Lord through Isaiah to the five cities, to the Pentopolis. And so it says in verse 29, Do not rejoice, O Philistia, all of you, because the rod that struck you is broken, for from the serpent's root a viper will come out, from its fruit will be a flying serpent. So the rod is broken. There's an image that, would, that struck them. But now that image is a snake. And we know rods and snakes in the story of, of the Exodus. I don't know that that's the image here, but, um, but from that oppressive force on you that's been broken, out of that is going to come something worse. And from that will be something even far worse, a flying, actually flaming snake. <laughs> Those who are helpless will eat, or the most helpless will eat, and the needy lie down in security. I will destroy the, your root with famine, and it will kill off your survivors. 
And that's an interesting uh, contradiction because in the first part of verse 30, the most helpless are going to eat. The needy will lie down in security. That's the oppressed people. And this gives you a hint at God's wrath on these nations. His, often his wrath on the Gentile nations and his own nations involves um, the way they take care of the poor or, or not. And so notice the contrast in verse 30, I will destroy your root with famine and it will kill off your survivors. So the, the needy are eating and insecurity, but uh, you, who he's talking to, they're going to be destroyed by famine and, killed, and, and the survivors will be killed off. So here's the response you should have. Wail, O gate, cry, O city, melt away, O Philistia, all of you. For smoke comes from the north and there is no straggler in his ranks. Whose ranks? The next verse. How then will one answer the messengers of the nation that the Lord has founded Zion and the afflicted of his people will seek refuge in it? What happened to you when Assyria came to you? How did you, how did you manage it? The Lord saved us. The Lord founded us and he's our God and he protected us. He's our refuge. Is the answer from Judah to the Philistines when they want to know what to do about Assyria, apparently. So in Close detail in verse 29, it says, Do not rejoice, O Philistia, all of you. A theme that happens twice in this little four-verse ditty. And remember, what's happening here is God has a special oracle of judgment on Philistia that he's giving through Judah. And they have an opportunity to hear it. Does that sound like anything that you've read in the Bible before? Maybe in Sunday school involving a man that didn't want to obey God, but he got to be a submariner and go in the fish to do what God wanted to do anyway? The message that God had for Nineveh, for the Assyrians, through Jonah the prophet was, repent or you're going to be destroyed. Actually, it was, in 40 days, you're going to be destroyed. And, and he didn't tell them to repent. He just said, God's going to destroy you all. And the people said, well, let's wear sackcloth and ashes and repent, and maybe God will forgive us. That was the response, and God was compassionate. He did forestall his wrath on them, and that's the story of Jonah is that the people didn't like it. They didn't have God's compassion in them for their enemies, as God did. And so um, notice that while this is an oracle of judgment, it is God's expression of his his self-revelation to these foreign people, and they don't deserve it. They do deserve the lake of fire for their sin and their wickedness. They don't deserve God's self-disclosure that he is, and they need to deal with him properly. And never forget the Rahab factor. The Rahab factor, we might call it, is when she knows and all her people know in in the story of Joshua that Yahweh is God in Israel. They know what Yahweh did to the the king of Egypt and his his chariots at the Red Sea. And they know what happened when they crossed the the Jordan River again and it stood up on its banks. They know that the creator is among these people. And that's why Rahab is a believer. That's why Rahab is in the line of our Savior. And she's a a wicked pagan uh, uh, prostitute. But, but that's what these people were supposed to be. And there's a message in that for all of us. When you read these oracles, you say, why am I reading about God's wrath on Philistia? When you read these oracles of God against these pagan Gentile nations, you're seeing God be very merciful to them and saying, I'm here and I have something to say to you. He's not just the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of creation who has something to say to all mankind. And so look at God's blessing to the Philistines. He tells them that he's there and they have to deal with him. Boy, what, what would happen if they actually believed the oracle of Isaiah like the Ninevites did in Jonah? What would have happened to them? And God's a perfect coach. He's a perfect communicator. He knows exactly what people need to hear. So he tells them, do not rejoice apparently over the 
um, the coming fall of the Assyrians in the near term, probably the Sennacherib invasion. My interpretation of this is it's a reference to the Assyrians who oppressed the Philistines and everyone else around. Don't rejoice over this because they're coming back is the message. Now, some have said this is Philistines rejoicing over the fall of the house of David, and that house is ultimately coming back so that Jesus the Messiah is the flying fiery snake. I don't adopt that interpretation. I think it's about the Assyrians. But nevertheless, listen, let's, let's hear it together. Do not rejoice, O Philistia, all of you, that it has been broken, verb first, and then the subject, the rod which struck you has been broken. Don't rejoice that that happened, for from the root of the serpent will go out a viper. And so you have the word nachash for serpent, and then safa, another word for a poisonous serpent. Excuse me. I know we've got new language. It's a venomous serpent. All my life in Texas, the snakes are poisonous, and now all of a sudden I was wrong. They're venomous. Because poison means that if you eat it, it'll kill you. Venomous means if it bites you, it'll kill you. So anyway, that's a poisonous or a venomous viper that will come out. Um, and we think that's what this noun does. And then there's a following noun that's one of our favorites. Um, and it's fruit, his fruit of this uh, poisonous uh, viper, venomous viper, his fruit or its fruit will be a seraph. Well, we know what a seraph is from the book of Isaiah. That's chapter 6. These are the burning ones that are flying with six wings above the throne of God, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, because seraph means to burn somehow. And one of the meanings of this word involves the burning somehow of a snake. And it doesn't mean that the snake is actually on fire and I'm struggling. Uh, no one, I don't think, really has a full grasp of what this word does. But it has something to do with uh, a snake. And it is a snake that is flying uh, off uh, the word to fly. So it is a flying, burning one. Um, I don't believe that the fruit of the venomous viper is a six-winged angel. Amen. But I do believe that you don't want to see the flying flame snake. Okay, and, that's, and, and notice the progression that he did in this flow of nouns. There's a, there's a serpent to a viper to a flying burning one. We don't want anything to do with any of that. If you're like me, I don't want to see that. I don't want to have that come at me. But it's getting worse is the oracle of judgment that God offers. And again, I don't believe that these are references to the house of David, which is in disarray. Uh, on the, the oracle, these oracles come at the end of, of, of Ahaz, his death. And so the theory is that this is um, the, the Philistines rejoicing that one of David's descendants has died. I think this is not about the coming of Messiah. I think this is about the coming, the return of Assyria. And then you have a very interesting image. They will graze from the word that we have for shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd or roe. My shepherd is roe or uh, um, the word for a shepherd, and the verb for that is to graze, because what shepherds do is they graze their flocks. And so that's the word here. They will graze, the, and it says, firstborn of the poor or the helpless. The firstborn ones, meaning the most poor, the, most, the first is like who came in first place on the I'm needy awards. The most helpless is how that translation arrived. They got at that translation in the New American Standard, but that's what most scholars take this to mean. So the firstborn of the poor will graze. All right, and that takes us right to Psalm 23 and um, the Lord is my shepherd I will not want and how he's got us in the fat grass laying down, resting and eating and eating, uh, drinking clean, cool, refreshing water. 
as a shepherd. That's the imagery here. They will graze and, and therefore they'll, they'll have plenty to eat in a verse about famine. The firstborn are the helpless and the needy, uh, the, the needy ones uh, will in security will lie down. Batach, a word that uh, can mean to trust or to repose one's, one's trust in. And it's a word that points to the sturdiness of the object of the faith. And it is in general, when it's used as a noun like this, for security, insecurity, they will lie down, they will rebot. And so that's a beautiful picture of rest and provision, of security and safety, and it's all the good things that you want. You want your needs met for energy and sustenance, and you want to do that in security where you don't expect someone to come molest you while you're trying to have dinner. And uh, one of the most interesting things to me is how we live our lives in such wonderful security by the grace of God that we are not generally posting sentries. In a military context, when you're on an operation, you always have somebody watching your perimeter. You always have somebody awake. The radios never are turned off. They're just given new batteries. There is a constant vigilance when you're in some sort of uh, foreign hostile situation or under some sort of threat, and people are always awake, which means that uh, you're probably not going to get enough sleep no matter how much you try to get sleep. And one of the soldiers' great occupations is an effort to get rest, to sleep. Now, why aren't the soldiers sleeping? They don't sleep because somebody has to be watching the perimeter, and you can't just have one person because the perimeter is a big thing, and you have to have multiple outposts watching and surveilling, and it's awful. One of the great things about coming out of a military scenario is the radios are gone, and you can't, it can't call you because if you're in charge... Somebody above you is more in charge, and they are going to call you whenever they want to. And you have to be available to take the call anytime. And it's a horrible leash. And a gentleman, if you think that your um, wife's access to you with a cell phone is a little bit of a constraint, just wait. If, imagine if you had a radio that could, could, was on at all times that doesn't even ring. It just calls. It's just a speaker that says, uh, uh, Coyote 1, this is Coyote 6, over. It's 2 in the morning. I mean, it's 0200. Coyote 6 is Coyote 1. <laughs> That's how it, and it's, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of uh, hardship. And, um, and you get into a frame of mind where four hours sleep is a benefit and you're really glad you got it. And uh, we, we long for the day two weeks or so from now when we can actually take a shower. And uh, it's a difficult lifestyle. And uh, the reason it exists in that military context is because there is a threat. There is opposition. There's a bad guy out there, and he's going to sneak into your lines and kill your people in their sleep. And so you have to stay on this constant vigilance. And we don't think about it, but we live in a beautiful relative security. And it's marvelous to, uh, to, to rest your head and go to sleep and fall asleep thanking God for his provision, for the, the opportunity to rest, for... If you, thought, if you thought about it in context of the world history, of the freedom we have to just rest, and the, the hardest question we've got is, will I get six hours sleep tonight or eight hours sleep, right? And, uh, and, and it better be in those two, not more like four hours, because you're going to get tired and, and not perform as well. But he says, the needy and security will lie down. And, and that's a beautiful uh, way of describing the lifestyle that you want that we have, that we're forsaking, that we're going to not have. And we don't know what we have till we lose it. 
boy, when we have to go into 360-degree security, meaning around an entire perimeter, and uh, you have to take your turn, and you hope that you get the first or the last shift, the middle shift is the worst, the 2 a.m. to 3 a, 2 to 5 a.m. thing is worthless because there's no sleeping afterwards. You want to sleep, but they're going to get you up at, when everyone wakes up. And um, you tried to sleep from midnight till 2, but you really couldn't fall asleep, so it's the worst of all guard shifts, and you look for that one guy that can fall asleep with a drop of a hat to put him in that slot. But anyway, it's a horrible thing to have to, um, to pull security, but the alternative is worse because if you need to secure the perimeter and you don't, then your people are going to get hurt or worse. And so this is what God has for the needy and for the helpless. But I will cause to, lie, to die with famine your root. So the you here is opposed to the needy. And this, I think, is the hint at the judgment God has for the Philistines. And your remnant, it will slay. This famine is going to kill them. It will slay them. Harag, which could, could be translated murder in certain contexts. In the, but but to, murder, to, to murder, to butcher, to, um, to kill. So a uh, horrible thing coming for the Philistines. And so here is Isaiah's poetry coming through. Wail, O gate. Cry out, O city. What's the gate? It's the place where the rulers of the, of the city-state would convene. And so you have the leadership and its people that are being led. Wail, O gate. Cry out, O city. Is probably the head and the body of the body politic. Melt away, O Philistia, all of you. Have you heard all of you already? He said it in verse 29. He says it again the same way because this is probably a song. Melt away, O Philistia, all of you, for from the north smoke is coming, and there is not a solitary, solita- not a solitary one, a straggler in his ranks. Nobody's being left behind because they are uh, shock troops, and they're well-armed and well-equipped and well-rested and well-fed, and you are in trouble because here they come. So it's the march, the advance of a foreign enemy to come destroy these Gentile nations. Now take note, as we mentioned in the prayer meeting earlier tonight, You can read Daniel chapter 9, his intercession for the nation, but you have to take into account that these people were in a covenant with Yahweh as their constitution. They were a theocracy. We are not that as a nation. No matter how bad we might like that that were true of our nation, it's never been true of the United States. This country has never been a covenant nation with Yahweh. Israel is the only covenant nation, Israel and Judah. And so what am I saying? I'm saying that God does deal with nations. He does deal with them corporately. And of the categories of nations that we know of, we have Israel and the Gentile nations. The United States, in my view, would be of the latter category because we cannot be Israel. Israel is Israel. And it's a national entity with a genetic identity and a covenant with God forever with Abraham. And then the covenant at Sinai, which was a temporary arrangement for their their nation as a theocracy. And so what am I saying? Read the oracles of Yahweh, the God of Israel, about the Gentile nations. There's plenty of revelation about how he deals with them and why he goes after them. And then we can tear our our garments, we can sit with sackcloth and ashes, and we can beg God to, in wrath, remember mercy. Remember in Daniel chapter 9, as we noted, the intercession Daniel has for his wicked nation when he confesses their sins and asks for God to remember his compassion for them and for his own namesake. Remember, that's after the smoke is already burned off. That's after the dust has settled and the nation has been completely destroyed and they've been in diaspora and he's asking for the return. If you read Daniel 9's prayer, it will resonate with you greatly about what he says about his people because it's true of our people. But he's asking for return after 
they've been decimated. That's where it's different. And so it gives me uh, concern, if you, if you will, um, that we haven't yet been decimated. But God will do this with Gentile nations, and I think there is a great application in what he says to the Philistines for us. How will one answer the messengers of, of the Goy, of the nation? This is an interesting word right here, malach, malach. You take these three letters, M-L-K, and uh, you put them in a different pattern, and you get melech, and that is the king. But if you have a quiescent, generally quiescent olive, malach, you get, um, you get uh, it's not quiescent olive, M-L-K. A-K, Aleph-K, you get Malak, which is an angel or a messenger. Usually this is translated angel, but angelos in Greek just means messenger. And Malak in Hebrew means messenger. And so we're not talking about an angelic creature here. We're talking about the nation of Philistia sending messengers to Judah. And the messengers want to know, I believe in context because of the oracle against Assyria beforehand, what do we do about Assyria? How are you still okay? Didn't they lay siege to you? What, what's, our, what's our plan here? And this is the answer for people in trouble from the Assyrians, that the Lord has founded in security Zion, that he has established his place. Remember chapter 14, verses um, 24 through 28, God is going to destroy the Assyrian army on his land. Zion, and they did. Outside the gates of Jerusalem, 185,000 Assyrians were destroyed. And so what do we tell the, the, the Philistines when they come and ask? The Lord has founded Zion. And in it, they will take refuge, the afflicted of his people. Now, the way this beautiful little jewel of an oracle is sewn up is fantastic. The afflicted of his people. Remember that little subtle hint of what the judgment is about from the Lord to the Philistines is because of the, the, the needy and the afflicted among your people are going to graze, but you are going to be destroyed. And now... The, 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 the afflicted of Yahweh's people have taken refuge with the Lord in Zion. Remember the theme in Isaiah, and it is beautifully illustrated here. If you exalt yourself in arrogance, you're doing it against God because God is the one who gets the glory and the praise. It is God who is exalted and glorious. So if you seek your own advancement and glory, like all the pagans and all the Gentiles and all the celebrities and all the TV personalities and blah, 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 blah. If you, if you join with the tendencies of the world that align with your sinful nature that tells you it's about you, then you can expect from God what he's going to do with the Philistines and the Assyrians and Babylon and everybody else. But if you will break the pattern, you will say no to your sinful nature and self-assertion, and you will do what Peter suggests in 1 Peter chapter 5 and humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he will exalt you at the proper time. It's the great the- one of the great themes of how God deals with human beings, and it's a major theme as we've seen in Isaiah. So let's switch over to Moab, the cousins to the, uh, to the east, in Isaiah chapters 15 and 16, God's judgment on the nation of Moab. And uh, I know it's a lot, and it's coming fast, but I want you to hear some compassion from God's man, Isaiah, toward these people that God is going to bring a crushing judgment on. My maps tonight are from Barry Beitzel's um, um, Moody Atlas of Bible Lands, I believe it's called. And uh, they're very helpful. I think that's my favorite Bible atlas I mentioned before. This is the land of Moab. And just to orient into you to my map, you have the Dead Sea, 
This is blue, but it's not water. It represents the land of Ammon. And between the two, at one period, you had a, a district called Meshur. But we don't read about that a lot in the text. And in fact, uh, in the time of Isaiah, these two regions here are joined because he's going to talk about Mediba and Heshbon and Deban and Aror. But the point is, this is right next door to Judah, to the area that, um, where God has his name to dwell forever. And, um, and so this is the Dead Sea, the Jordan River, and the Mediterranean Sea. And so in this map, uh, the reason I showed you the map, and if you've read Isaiah 15, you know, it's a great, it's a, it's a series of geographic references that just tell you, basically, I'm going to summarize Isaiah 15, 1 through 9, everybody's going to die. <laughs> Everything is going. There is no city that's going to be remaining and no geographical feature. And Isaiah says it in some beautiful poetry. And um, so just know that uh, you have the brook of Zered, Kir Haraseth, which, which is, uh, I believe, their capital of, of the, the land of Moab. Remember, Moab and Ammon are the cousins. They're Lot's kids that came about because of uh, the story of Lot and his daughters in Genesis after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and his wife turned to a pillar of salt, and then they, they produced, uh, unfortunately, Moab and Ammon. And um, so these are cousins to uh, Israel, and they have been oppressive to Israel in their history. One of the great stories, one of the great action stories of world history is Judges chapter 3 and double O Echud, where you have a judge that God raised up to destroy Eglon, king of Moab, who was extracting such a horrible, horrible um, uh, tribute from Judah, from, Jerusalem, from Israel, that, um, that the king was very, very overweight. He was morbidly obese, and there are two morbidly obese people in the Old Testament around the same time period of the judges that, that bring your attention to the fact that they're consuming things that they shouldn't. And the first is Eglon, king of Moab, in Judges 3. And the second is the priest Eli and his sons extorting the people in their offerings. And, uh, and he's, he's letting them do it and benefiting from it at his table. And so these, and, and Eli falls over and breaks his neck with his great weight. Uh, and that's how he dies. And uh, Eglon, his girth plays into the story too because um, it's thematic in the story because he has been exacting this horrible tribute from, uh, from Israel. And God's man, uh, Ehud, goes in and kills Eglon by stabbing him in his girth with a sword that he made himself. And it's a fantastic story uh, if you're into action stories, but it is a strategic, what we would call militarily, a strategic decapitation. It's the assassination of the enemy uh, king. And so it's a chess game where the pawn skips across the whole board to the king's bathroom and kills him. And uh, that's, that's one of the episodes of God's dealings uh, with Moab through his people. And uh, so it's the same thing, and, and they're exacting this horrible tribute again and have, through their history, been oppressive to Israel and Judah. And so you're going to hear about all these different places. Dibon is going to come up, and he's going to call it Dimon, which is a play on words because Dom is blood, and it's a reference to the blood that's going to flow. Uh, the Arnon River is one of the boundaries of Moab. We're going to hear about Mount Nebo and uh, Mediba and Heshbon and all these places that are, just show up on the map. It's, it's saying from beginning to end, from east to west, and Moab is going to be destruction. So we're looking at the, the kingdom of Moab and God's oracle against them in uh, two short little chapters. And uh, here's how you might outline it. In verses 1 through 9 of chapter 15, 
Moab is going to be devastated. It's just an oracle of devastation. It names all these geographic locations that are going to be either dead or crying. All right. In chapter 16, 1 through 5, the shock of this oracle to the Gentiles is that God extends mercy, an offer of mercy through the Messiah. And that's why I'm pushing. I want to get to this one. These people who have been oppressive and enemy of Israel through most of their history are being offered the Messiah in 16. In verse 6, though, you see them reject it. They have a proud rejection of Judah because, see, salvation comes through the Jews, and they are not going to get it from the Jews. 16, 7 through 12, the devastating consequences of the refusal. So we're back to the devastation of chapter 15, and then when it will come, uh, a, little, a little end cap. So that's one way you might outline Isaiah chapters 15 through 16. And um, to whet our appetite for that, why don't we tell a story? If you turn in your Bibles, please, very briefly, to first, 2 Kings chapter 5. This is a theme that just runs through the Bible, and we miss it. Uh, the anti-Semitic, supposedly Christians of Christen, the, church, the history of Christendom missed it. Um, and we, we don't read Romans 9 through 11. We don't believe in future Israel or, or the value of past Israel or the identity of Israel. But um, it's a major theme in Scripture. And here's a great story of one of our favorite heroes in the Bible, the Jewish prophet Elisha. Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, that's Syria, another cousin to the north, was, in great, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. So it, it kind of reads intentionally this long list of the greatness of this man, and then, oh yeah, but he's a leper. The only one, the only one drawback that he had was he had a terminal condition where body parts were falling off of him. Um, now the Arameans, that's the Syrians, had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. Who's the prophet in Samaria? You're asking which area? That's the northern kingdom, the capital of the northern kingdom being Samaria in Hebrew Shomron. I wish that you could go see the holy man, the, the man of God up in Samaria. And that's now Elisha, Elijah's successor. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. He may be speaking behind a mask or some sort of covering. He may be speaking uh, with a, a difficulty to understand him, depending on where the leprosy is taking effect. And he's desperate, and he has no answer, and there's no hope. He's just going to disintegrate. So the, the, she says she's got something, she said. She's on and on about the guy in Samaria. Verse 5, then the king of Aram said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him 10 talents of silver and 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothes. So wealth is coming to Israel to secure the work of the magician that may be on retainer in, for the king of Israel, the, their holy man. He brought the letter to the king of Israel saying, and now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman, my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, <laughs> 
He said, am I a God to kill and to make alive? And this man is sending word to me to to cure a man of this leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. He sent me a king's ransom. He's already paid me for services that I cannot render. He's trying to start a war. How did this all start? A little girl got kidnapped. Right? This is one of those God meant it for good stories. A little girl that believes in Yahweh and knows that Yahweh's man lives in Samaria in the person of Elisha, she knows the answer. I know what will solve your problem. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. The Gentile pagans are coming to Israel for the cleansing, for the healing. And they get it, but they have to get it the right way. It's going to be God's way. You can't go wash in your river. It's going to be the Jordan River. So Naaman came with his horses, his chariots, and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, I've taken chemistry. I know that water is not going to cure me. We've got plenty of good water in our country, and we all believe in our rivers as symbols of our national identity. They do, and they did. We've got great rivers in Syria. Naaman was furious. Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, that's Yahweh, his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farfar the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. It's a pep rally, and these men are acting, all of them, like children in a way. The king thinks that there's going to be a war because he can't fix it. He's hopeless. It's a mini, it's a mini Nebuchadnezzar. I, I'm having a nightmare. Somebody's got to fix it. And the prophet says, I can fix it. I mean, God, he'll let me help you fix it. The servants came near and spoke to him and said, now the, the, the little girl that's a servant of Naaman's wife has been a, a free Israelite who was taken into slavery. And she, the servant, is the one that has the answer for the general's illness. And now the servants of Naaman came near and spoke to him and said, my father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? That is called reasoning. And these people are thinking, and they have a rationale that's pretty obvious. What what do you have to lose? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. He was clean, and all God's people said, let me get at the Jordan River for some clean, fresh, childlike skin. I'll go wash seven times and get that same effect, right? We'd love to have that happen. But here's the point of the story, and it's very evident. It's God's way and it's God's place. And the nations must and eventually will stream to Jerusalem for their cleansing. Now, this happened in history, but it's a message in God's story that he's got for all the nations. Yeah, the man in in Israel has power. And most of the prophets through the history of Israel did not have miraculous power. Just a few. The miracle stories of the Old Testament are captivating, but they're rare. It's Moses, Elijah, and Elisha. For the most part, it's those guys are the ones that are working the miracles. And they, they're, they're amazing what God does through them. And this is one of the miracles, the cleansing of leprosy, which is unheard of except Moses. 
interceded for Miriam and the leprosy went away. But the point that we're seeing here is that the Gentile is coming to Israel for clean for cleansing and God extends his grace, his mercy and demonstrates that there is a God in Israel. So back to our Moab and devastation in Isaiah 15:1 through 9. The oracle concerning Moab, oracle just means a burden, a revelation that God has that he gives through the prophet Isaiah. And the reason why he spends more, more ink, he spills more ink on Moab, we don't know. This is a collection of oracles that were offered in the flow of history in Isaiah's life and ministry. And they were historically arranged for God to say something to these nations at just the right time with just the right words that he wanted to say. And we today can just marvel at God's grace toward the pagans that he has compassion on them and gives them his self-revelation. Surely in the night, Ar of Moab is devastated and ruined. Surely in the night, Kir of Moab is devastated and ruined. So two of the cities are completely destroyed. And notice the rhyming is identical. It's the same sentence. So these, again, read kind of like lyrically like a song. They have gone up to the temple, uh, to the temple and to Debon, two high places, even to the high places to weep. So they have, the, the two big cities have been destroyed, and now we're going to go to church. They're going to go to their worship centers and weep and lament and grieve over the loss of New York and Boston. Moab wails over Nebo and Mediba, two other cities farther to the north we mentioned. Everyone's head is bald and everyone's beard is cut off, meaning that they're destitute and they're humbled and humiliated. And that's just the opening salvo of God's wrath on Moab. In their streets, they've girded themselves with sackcloth on their housetops and in their squares. Everyone is wailing dissolved in tears. Imagine the, just the imagery. Now, we're cheating, aren't we? Shouldn't we read an Isaiah oracle every five or six years? He's a minister of God's word to Judah and other nations, but through Judah, for over 60 years, right? We're just, this is, but this is one of the oracles. You hear what Isaiah came out with last week? There's another prophecy that he's given, that God has given him. Everyone's wailing in Moab. Heshbon and Eleale also cry out. Their voice is heard all the way to Yahaz. See, it's a geographical summary of every place. Have you ever been to Six Flags? He's calling out all the rides. He's naming all the different places on the map. And so it's a tour of Moab and everything is desolate. Therefore, the armed men of Moab cry aloud. When your armed men are crying out, blowing snot out their noses with great tears flying out of the corners of their eyes, we are in a lot of trouble. They're soaking their, their body armor with their tears. Okay, that's the picture. And it's, a, it's the opposite of what you would expect. These are supposed to be the soldiers, supposed to be stoic. They're supposed to be able to manage this and just do their job. But they're not. They're overcome emotionally because of the devastation. His soul trembles within him. My heart cries out for Moab is the shocking line that grabs our attention in Isaiah chapter 15, verse 5. My heart cries out for Moab. See, we were kind of laughing at their soldiers crying out. But that's not the uh, emotion that Isaiah is going for experiencing as he considers the cousins and their coming destruction. My heart cries out for Moab. Is that Yahweh speaking as an oracle from God, or is that Isaiah? And in some cases, you really, 
you're not supposed to be able to pull that apart. It's God speaking an oracle about Moab through Isaiah. So it very much you have the attitude of God toward these people, and it echoes the end of the book of Jonah. It's exactly how God concludes the book of Jonah when he chides Jonah for his lack of compassion. Where he says, well, I'm not going to take the time, where he says, uh, you, don't, you don't have compassion on the, the, the children in, in, uh, in Nineveh that don't know their left hand from the right hand, and you don't um, even, what about the animals too? And it ends on a question. Jonah 4 ends on a question that you're supposed to take, internalize yourself. You're not supposed to answer the question. It's rhetorical. You're supposed to say, like little kid stories have Jonah saying, I understand. Jonah never understood is the point, but do you get it? Do you get that God is compassionate? He isn't willing or desiring, I should say, to bring the, the doom that eventually came to Nineveh. But um, he would rather that they would turn their heart to him. My heart cries out for Moab. His fugitives are as far as Zoar and Egloth, Shilashiah the third, Egloth the third. For they go up the ascent of Luhith weeping. See all these geographic references. Boy, would, it would be cool to go to Moab and just go to all these places, Right? Um, they go up to the ascent of Luhith weeping, surely on the road to Horonaim. They raise a cry of distress over their ruin. So the theme he's, he's got in this oracle is all the locations, all the geography. For the waters of Nimrim are desolate. Surely the grass is withered, the tender grass has died out, and there's no green thing, which means everybody's going to starve to death. So in this oracle of coming judgment from Yahweh, you have this note, this tone of compassion. Therefore, the abundance which they've acquired and stored up How'd they get that abundance? Well, in part, they plundered their cousins. And there was always this problem about their, their tribute and their high taxes and, and the plundering of, the, of Israel. The abundance which they've acquired and stored up, they carry off over the brook Arabim. So they're running, trying to drag wheelbarrows of their, of their loot, is, is the picture. For the cry of distress has gone around the territory of Moab all over, just like we've just read. Its wail goes as far as Aglaim, and it's wailing even to Bir Elim down in the south. For the waters of Dimon are full of blood. Now, this is a, an interesting play on words. Damim, or Dam, is blood. It's always a plural because liquids are plural. Concepts like liquid or uh, life, these are plurals not because there are multiple lives, but because in Hebrew, these concepts are pluralized. And so you have the word for blood here, um, and it's the Debon River, but it's the waters of Demon here because he's, he changed the B for an M here because he's going to talk about blood. And it's a play on words to indicate that the, the waters that would refresh the people are poison to them. And it, it's reminiscent of God turning the, blood, the water to blood in Egypt. Surely I will bring added woes upon Demon, a lion upon the fugitives of, fugitives of Moab and upon the remnant of the land. So if they happen to escape the famine or the bloody water or whatever, there are going to be lions waiting for them at the exits. So it's, it's very vivid imagery of God's wrath and judgment on these people, and you can see why there would be uh, a desire for compassion as bad as this is described. But in verses um, 1 through 5, you have a different tone of this same oracle. The, the, Isaiah never put verse, uh, chapter 16 as a break. It's one long discussion. And um, so what does verses 1 through 5 say? Send the tribute lamb to the ruler of the land. 
Okay, we know what a tribute lamb is. We're going to give an offering to a ruler of the land. He doesn't say what the land is at the first part of verse 1. We don't know who's sending, but we know that somebody is in need and somebody else is having compassion. Well, it turns out from Selah, by the way, of the wilderness to the mountain of the daughter of Zion, the Moabites are being encouraged to send tribute to Israel, to Jerusalem, to the ruler there. Have recourse to Israel. All you have to do is humble yourself before God and the God of Israel. It's not like that they're better people than you. It's that their God is the living God. And if you want him, you have to go through them. That's the, that's the way it worked. So send tribute to them. That's not going to set well, according to verse 6, but let's hear it. Let's hear the offer. Then after you pay tribute to the king of Zion, the, like fleeing birds or scattered nestlings, the daughters of Moab will be at the fords of the Arnon to come and seek refuge as refugees from whatever this attack that he hasn't named, probably the Assyrians, they're refugees. They can take refuge in Zion. Just like Philistia was encouraged. God is the God in Zion and he's established it and his afflicted have found refuge there with him. So the daughters of Moab will be at the fords of the Arnon. Give us advice. See, we've sent a tribute to the king and what we do is we appeal to him. Make a decision. Cast your shadow like night at high noon, the greatness of the king of Zion. You tell us and we'll know what to do. Hide the outcast. Do not betray the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab stay with you. Be hiding place to them from the destroyer. This is what you need to say. You need to come to Judah and, and make your appeal and do what Ruth the Moabitess did. My God will be your God. My people will be your people. This is the appeal. You're under this attack. There's a neighbor uh, that you can have recourse to that has the living God, and you can call on him. For the extortioner has come to an end, and destruction has ceased. Oppressors have completely disappeared from the land. A throne will even be established in loving kindness, chesed, and a judge will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent of David. Moreover, he will seek justice and be prompt in righteousness. In the middle of the oracles of God's judgment, you've got to read them and work through them. Partly because we're a Gentile nation, we should hear about God's attitude on uh, the Gentile t- tendency toward idolatry. But also, in there, there are some wonderful nuggets of messianic prophecy. You Moabites need to appeal to, to Zion, to Judah, and, and bring a tribute to the king there, because ultimately the king, David's greater son, is going to rule in perfect righteousness. This is a prophecy of the greater king uh, from the line of David. He will, in faithfulness, in the tent of David. He'll seek justice and be prompt in righteousness. And this hangs in the air. This is the offer. Come to Judah and bring tribute and find refuge here. It's a good deal where Judah is, where there's this peace that's being offered. There's no extortion. There's no oppression here. There's peace. Now, this is uh, what we read in Isaiah 2, that all the nations are going to stream into Zion to hear from Yahweh and be taught of his ways and hear the law, uh, the, the instruction of Yahweh from his king on Zion. And this is the destiny of all nations. Their recourse will be to the capital city, Jerusalem, and the capital country, Israel, over all the nations in a one world government under Jesus Christ. That's the destiny of the human race in this coming kingdom to which we already belong but is not yet in effect. And this is a, a glimpse of it. So Moab, that's what you need to do. You need to have recourse to Judah. But you know about sibling rivalries. 
I don't know what the adjective for cousins is, but it's about the same thing as a sibling rivalry here. They hate each other, and they have hated each other, and this isn't going to go over well. So now verse 6. We've heard of the pride of Moab, an excessive pride. Even his arrogance, pride, and fury. There's like five or six uh, synonyms in Hebrew here for, for pride and arrogance. See, humble yourself and send tribute to the king of Judah. That's not going to happen. Oh, but it was such a beautiful offer. It was God's compassion on these people. His idol boasts are false, so therefore Moab will wail. Every one of Moab will wail. It's an interesting lyrical device. We told you of this awful devastation. We see an offer of compassion through Judah, ultimately in Messiah. And now at the moment of decision, verse 6, arrogance stops it. I can't. I won't. I won't humble myself before God. Not going to happen. It's a tragic thing, but it's, the, it's happening in Connecticut. It's happening everywhere uh, that I've ever been. Moab is going to wail. That's their choice. Everyone of Moab will wail. You will moan for the raisin cakes of Kir Haraseth, that city that fell in the first part. That raisin cakes thing is an interesting historical thing. Now, that's because you have grapes, and so you can make raisin cakes. That's part of it, and we'll hear about that. But there's more to the raisin cake thing and hot cross buns and all that. And uh, elsewhere in the scripture, read of weeping for the raisin cakes of Semiramis or Semiramis and the original paganism from Babylon. And that's a story for another time. Suffice it to say that there's nothing in the Bible about Lent. But there is a reason why historically Christendom adopted a pagan ritual system and called it a Christian holiday of Lent and uh, Ash Wednesday and all that stuff. I like purple and, and red, or sorry, purple and green colors together, and I have somewhat of an appreciation for New Orleans classic jazz, but I don't have a whole lot to do with Mardi Gras and Ash Wednesday and all that made-up stuff. It's just, it's just whitewashed paganism with a Christian patina, but it has nothing to do with the walk by the scriptures, uh, by the spirit according to the scriptures. But, but when you read about raisin cakes, that's something that shows up elsewhere, and we'll talk about that some other time. So you'll, you'll moan for the raisin cakes that you used to make as those who are utterly stricken for the fields of Heshbon have withered. The vines, see, you can't make raisin cakes because you don't have any vines I have withered as Sigma. The lords of the nations have trampled down its choice clusters, which reached as far as Yazer and wandered to the deserts. Its tendrils spread themselves out and passed over the sea. Therefore, I will reap, weep bitterly for Yazer. Now, if we did the poetic kind of work where we saw the two lines where he was compassionate, you'd see that this thing is center-seeking to the offer of uh, Messiah <laughs> and, and, and the arrogant reaction to say no. But just like he said, I have compassion earlier, now he's saying I weep bitterly for Yazer, the vine of Sibma. I will drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Eliella, for the shouting over your summer fruits and your harvest has fallen away. There's no shouting at harvest because there's no summer fruit. Gladness and joy are taken away from the fruitful field and the vineyards also. There will be no cries of joy or jubilant shouting. Now, this isn't because uh, it's bad to have vines. That's not the point. The fruit of the vine was commanded of Israel to worship God in uh, praising him and celebrating together with that uh, in their feasts. So it's not that they're drunks. That is a thing in the prophets when they are abusing the fruit of the vine. He'll tell them, but that's not the point. The point here is one of the great blessings of God is the vineyards, and you don't get those blessings. They've been destroyed. There's no jubilant shouting uh, at, at the harvest time. No treader treads out in the wine presses, for I've made the shouting to cease. 
Therefore, verse 11, my heart intones like a harp for Moab. Again and again and again, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is saying this is heartbreaking, that it is their arrogant reaction to say no to him, ultimately, that brings about his wrath. My inward feelings for Kir Harasseth, the, uh, the, that capital city. So it will come about when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself upon his high place and comes into his sanctuary to pray, he will not prevail. He's not talking to Yahweh. And you don't get to Yahweh through your made-up high places. You need to go to his sanctuary, to Zion. This is the word which the Lord spoke earlier concerning Moab, but now the Lord speaks, saying, within three years, as a hired man would count them, the glory of Moab will be degraded along with all his great population. His remnant will be very small and impotent. So in Isaiah's day, there is, this will be fulfilled. And God is very gracious to tell them this is it. Now, again, the pattern to understand this kind of oracle, I think, is the book of Jonah, where God says, you're all going to die in 40 days. So the people can choose to believe it or not. And if they'll believe it, they'll do something about it. And in the story of Jonah, they did, and that was disappointing to Jonah. But it's a tragedy to see that the mental attitude arrogance is what stops them from receiving the compassion that God offers through his Messiah. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege we've had to think through Isaiah chapters 14 through 16 tonight. Thank you for letting us uh, see that consistent entire oracle against Moab. And uh, in your design that you've shown us compassion again and again to people that, uh, you, that rightly have incurred your wrath. Father, the United States of America could use that compassion. As Habakkuk prayed for his people after uh, asking you to do something about their wickedness, he asked for in wrath that you would remember mercy. We do intercede for our nation even as we confess our wickedness, our rebellion, our arrogance, our thumbing the nose at you, our shaking our fists, simply in saying we'll be our own people and we'll resolve to live our lives as we see fit, just like in the judges, people doing what was right in their own eyes. Father, this is true of our nation, and we do deserve, corporately, your wrath, but we ask that that sense of compassion which you had for Moab, that you would express this toward us. In fact, Father, we pray that your spirit would go about through our nation, healing it by turning one heart at a time to consider Christ by conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment, that the gospel in its pure, clean freeness and its grace offer of salvation by faith alone that would go forward and not be hampered by all the distractions and horrible theology that uh, pervade even evangelicalism today. That we would humble ourselves as a people, Father, to hear long enough that clear message of the work of Christ on the cross for us. And Father, whether you let us persist as a nation, as a national entity or not, I pray that your mission would go forward, that many would come to glory through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that you let Preston City Bible Church be a part of it in your time and your purpose for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.